0: Entering the Freedom Hut.
1: Will this finally be the end of the impeachment charade? Plus, Elizabeth Warren releases her plan to criminalize disinformation. And then how about this? A felon in Iowa convicted of sex crimes as a man no longer deemed a threat because of a gender change. We're going to get into all that and so much more coming up.
0: This, this is the Buck, Buck Sexton, Sexton Show, where the, mission, where the mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small to Make no
2: mistake. America. Your great. You're a great American. Again.
0: The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is
2: Buck Sexton.
0: Now.
1: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. It's Madison Jessietto here in the hut today for Buck Sexton in New York City. Thank you so much for being with us today. And we have a lot to get to, but, you know, I got to start with impeachment. This might be the world's driest impeachment trial ever. The ratings are down. We've heard it over and over again. Why? Because no one is watching. It's a joke, and and the American people know that. There's a million better things we could be doing than watching this because— It has no constitutional grounds. I mean, there's no reason for it. And everybody recognizes, I mean, even many Democrats that I talk to have recognized the fact that since the day this president was elected, the do-nothing Democrats have devoted all their time and their energy to trying to remove our duly elected president from office. Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Adam Schiff, they've all lied since the very beginning. And of course, their behavior is despicable. But it's no surprise, because as we've seen time and time again, the elitist left and the mainstream media have not only continually smeared President Trump, but they smeared his supporters. Buck talked about this yesterday in regards to the Don Lemon CNN clip. They're totally out of touch with the American people. And I really wonder if some of them have even read the Constitution. But, you know, we, ha- we have to get real here. Why are they doing this? Their actions are out of fear. Fear of knowing That not one of their Democratic Socialist candidates has a chance to beat President Trump in November. And we watched President Trump's defense team, including Pam Bondi, dismantle three days of the Democrats case in just two hours. Correctly pointing out, of course, the lack, total lack of qualifications for Hunter Biden to serve on the board of Burisma while he, meanwhile, got paid tens of thousands of dollars a month. Insane. Imagine if this was Donald Trump Jr., what they do to him. Uh, Pam Bondi, of course, also referenced a uh, clip of Joe Biden antagonizing Ukraine to fire the prosecutor who was looking into corruption or to lose a billion dollars in loan guarantees from the Obama-Biden administration. Uh, and I have one question, you know, isn't that quid pro quo exactly what they want to accuse President Trump of? But now, you know, they want to say that they're going to come save the day with John Bolton. He's so credible. He's so great. What he has to say is so important. But Let's, let's look back to 2005. What did Adam Schiff had to say about him then? Let's check out this clip.
3: The president, uh, and that is nuclear terrorism. Uh, Mr. Bolton has been a wall. He's been more focused on the next job than doing well at the last job. And particularly, given the history uh, where we've had the politicization of intelligence over WMD, why we would pick someone uh, who the very same uh, issue has been raised repeatedly, and that is John Bolton's politicization of the intelligence he got in Cuba and on other issues. Why would we would want someone with that lack of credibility? I can't understand.
1: Why would we want someone with that lack of credibility? I can't understand. This is Adam Schiff, 2005, talking about John Bolton. Well, if you think that's too old, let's take a listen to Adam Schiff in 2018 in clip three talking about John Bolton once again.
3: Well, I think Bolton is not only a bad choice, uh, it's honestly difficult to consider a worse choice. This is someone who is likely to exaggerate uh, the dangerous impulses of the president towards belligerence, uh, his uh, proclivity to act without thinking, uh, and uh, his, uh, his love of conspiracy theory, uh, theories. Um, and I'll you know just add one data point to what you were talking about earlier. John Bolton once suggested on Fox News that the Russian hack of the DNC uh, was a false flag operation that had been conducted by the Obama administration. Uh, so you add that kind of thinking to Joe DiGenova, uh, and you have another big dose of unreality in the White House. Uh, so the Bolton appointment really scares me on Iran, on North Korea, uh, on feeding this kind of conspiracy, thinking about, uh, about the president. But the firing of doubt also ought to alarm all of us because it's yet another signal that he intends to have a much more aggressive uh, approach to Bob Mueller. And we're, I think, a step closer uh, to a potential firing of Bob Mueller.
1: 2018. It's difficult to consider a worse choice. You have another big dose of unreality in the White House. This is what Adam Schiff had to say about John Bolton credible, not credible, it seems that it's a choice of convenience for Adam Schiff as to when he considers Bolton to be credible. But of course, none of this changes the fact that the allegations in the book don't even change the key facts in the impeachment. We have legal scholars across the country talking about the fact that nothing in the revelations, even if proven to be true, would rise to the level of an abuse of power or an impeachable offense. And, of course, we have glaring issues in the New York Times story on the leaked manuscript. Not only does it omit direct quotes from the manuscript, it doesn't cite named sources. And, of course, what a convenient time to leak the info. The same day, same time, pre-orders are made available for John Bolton's book on Amazon. Not surprising. And if none of this is enough, let's listen to John Bolton himself in the words of the president on Twitter. Game over.
4: I will be meeting President Zelensky. Uh, He and President Trump have already spoken twice. Uh, President called to congratulate President Zelensky on his election, and then on his success in the parliamentary election. They were very warm and cordial calls. Uh, We're hoping that uh, they'll be able to meet in Warsaw and have a few minutes together. Uh, Because the success of Ukraine, uh, maintaining its freedom, uh, its system of representative government, uh, a free market economy, free of corruption uh, and dealing with the problems of the Donbass and the Crimea are uh, high priorities here, obviously, but high priorities for the United States as well.
1: No quid pro quo there. No concerns from John Bolton. We're going to be back with more on impeachment and with special guest Mark Lauder after this break.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
1: Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. It's Madison Giaciato in today for Buck. And I want to keep talking about impeachment, and I want to bring in Mark Lauder. Many of you know Mark. He's the Trump campaign director of strategic communication and former special assistant to the president. Mark, thanks for joining us.
5: Oh, thanks for having me, Madison.
1: So, you know, the war over witnesses has begun to monopolize both sides. What do you think we're going to see moving forward when it comes to this impeachment trial? And are we going to see witnesses?
5: Well, it it doesn't look like it, and I think the the fact of the matter is is what we've got to come to an understanding of is that it does not matter who they may or may not call as witnesses. It's not going to change the fundamental facts of this case, that we've we've read the transcript, there was no quid pro quo, the Ukrainians admitted there was no pressure, the aid was released, and there were no investigations announced, and there is no witness that could be called that's going to change any of the fundamental facts of this case.
1: Right. And, you know, we we see that the president's defense team went up there. They delivered their closing arguments, which many feel, uh, you know, really collapsed the Democrats case for impeachment, of course. And a lot of people now are talking about the fact that policy agreements don't merit a grounds for impeachment. And while this may be great for the president, and for the campaign, When it comes to people going to that ballot box in November of 2020, what do you think the long term implications could be for our country and for the potential of impeachment turning into a partisan tool or game?
5: Well, this is this is disastrous for our country long term. Never in the history of our country have we ever had a one-party, purely partisan impeachment, and that's what this was. Despite the fact that in the 90s you had Democrats saying you couldn't have a partisan impeachment, you even had Nancy Pelosi last spring saying you can't have a one-party impeachment, and yet here we are. I I think you know it's not only Nancy Pelosi, Adam Schiff. I think you know Thelma and Louise joined the squad, and they. this party right off the cliff and it is a dangerous precedent that they are setting here and it will be even more dangerous if it gets to the point where any future president or this president cannot have a robust discussion and even disagreements with members of his senior staff or with a national security advisor because they're afraid that they're going to get hauled before a hostile congress of a hostile party and have all of those disagreements exposed it will put national security at risk regardless of what party future presidents may represent but
1: but isn't the democrats arguing that this is in the interest of national security mark is not what we keep hearing from them
5: Apparently it was such a national security threat that they had to wait 30 days to even turn these impeachment articles over and that they could not use the tools at hand. I mean, as much as they're talking about complaining about witnesses, they didn't subpoena these witnesses. And they didn't want to avail themselves of the courts to decide on the president's right of executive privilege and having these conversations, which is something that presidents of both parties, going back to the foundings of our republic, have just offended. Uh, I mean, it just shows you that if it weren't for double standards, the Democrats wouldn't have standards at all.
1: Sure. And, you know, the polls continue to show, Mark, that Americans are broadly opposed to impeachment while the support for the president continues to grow. And so, you know, as the Democrats impeachment sham continues and, and, you know, we're not quite at the end yet. But I think one of the things to note here, and maybe you can touch on this a little bit for our listeners, is the scrutiny of the Biden's corrupt family business practices. I think that's finally increasing. So this, you know, may have had uh, backfired more than the Democrats had expected, you know, especially just days before we head into the Iowa caucus.
5: It really is backfiring, and, and for good reason. I mean, the American people, you don't have to know all the fine details, but you can understand when the sitting vice president of the United States is leading policy discussions and his son is getting paid by whether it's Ukraine and or China. And now we're coming out and we're finding that there were even more sweetheart deals for the members of the Biden family involving his brother and getting land deals and contracts, which he was. Not qualified to get. There's been other members of the family that have now just recently been exposed of also getting sweetheart deals. And the American people get that. They realize this stinks. We wouldn't tolerate a city council person who's getting their family paid on the backside while they're making these official decisions. And we shouldn't hold, we should expect the same thing that it's wrong for the then vice president of the United States and someone who's running for president to get those same sweetheart deals. And to put a fine point on this, you know Biden is in trouble when they've actually had to come out and say, well, now if if he's nominated or if he wins, we won't do that anymore.
1: Right, of course. And, you know, when we look going back to impeachment and, you know, how this has all kind of come out when it comes to the Bidens, we see even multiple Democrats, of course, in swing states coming forward saying they're undecided on the president's guilt. And they may even come over and vote with the Republicans, Joe Manson of West Virginia, Kristen Sinema of Arizona, Doug Jones of Alabama. How do you think this is going to play out? And, you know, give give our listeners a preview of what you think the next steps in in the conclusion of this impeachment hearing and and trial is going to be.
5: Well, I think there's no question that he will be exonerated by the Senate. And again, and, there's a very high likelihood that just like in the House of Representatives, in the Senate, you will have a bipartisan vote of no. Uh, I don't see any Republicans crossing over, uh, which means that this will have been entirely an engineered Democrat hoax that has been rebuked by bipartisan votes in both houses of de- of, house- of Republicans and Democrats saying no. And so I think that will obviously serve as a strong platform. We've seen the president's Polls numbers going up, impeachment numbers going down, and there is not a single person on this campaign uh, with for President Trump that wanted this to to go this way. We'd rather talk about the issues, the economy, rising paychecks. But since Democrats went down this path, you can be assured that we're going to defend and maximize it to the most that we can. And we're seeing it: hundreds of thousands of people are crossing over and signing up to volunteer and to donate. And you could look at that. Rally We just had the other night in New Jersey of all places, deep blue New Jersey, most requested number of tickets ever for a presidential rally. And when we looked at the data even further, a quarter of the people who were there were Democrats. I mean, that shows you this this president is bringing new people into the party. It's one of those reasons why I think, combined with the fact that you've got a self-avowed socialist and communist sympathizer in Bernie Sanders who's leading their ticket, I think every state in the union is now in play, with the exception probably of being the People's Republic of California.
1: Right. And, you know, when it when it comes to this impeachment, what do you think the effect is going to be that it has on the election. We're obviously seeing a lot of energy very far out from November for the president at these rallies, which we covered uh, on the first just a few days ago. What do you think that ultimate effect's going to be? And do you truly believe that the Democrats are only doing this because they know they will lose in November? And we have American people, of course, very irritated with that because they see this and they see the Russian collusion hoax the same way. This is time and taxpayer money that's been wasted with no result or direct benefit to the American people.
5: Well, I think the American people are seeing it, and I think that's one of the reasons why the president's support is rising to the highest levels we've seen since he's taken office in multiple polls. And uh, the Democrats know that they're in trouble, and yet you have to wonder, because you've got crazy Maxine Waters and others out there who are saying, we're not done, we're going to impeach him again. I mean, they're already talking about going down this path, knowing they're going to lose this impeachment, and openly talking about impeaching him again. I mean, this is just going to be a never-ending cycle. They wanted him impeached from the day he was elected, and they're not going to stop until the American people remove them from power in the House of Representatives and also send this president back to the White House.
1: And before we close out, Mark, you know, I want to ask you a question. We're going to be talking a little bit later in the show about the chance of a brokered convention for the Democrats. Obviously, you look at at who's on the ballot for them in these primaries and in going into the Iowa caucus. Uh, it doesn't seem like any of these candidates could beat President Trump. Uh, do they recognize that? Do you think they're going to go to a brokered convention? Is there even anybody out there that that could even, you know, compete? In November against this president. I mean, when we see the economic numbers and we see the promises made, promises kept uh, from 2015, 2016, all the way till now, hundreds of promises that have been kept. Do you think there's anybody out there? And could the Democrats uh, even even try to pull something like that this summer?
5: Well, it looks more and more likely that they might, uh, because you you do have Bernie Sanders who's leading in the polls, and now you're seeing a lot of the DNC and the mainstream Democrats coming out against him because they're afraid. It's almost like 2016 again, where they're trying to gang up and keep him from getting the nomination, but they can't agree on who should get the nomination. And it's very possible that they could go into a brokered convention. But regardless, we, we really don't care which one of them comes out of their nominating process. Process. They're all going to have endorsed such radical policies as taking away people's private health insurance, eliminating the energy independence that our country has now achieved, and That's going to drive up people's utility bills. They're talking about eliminating millions of people's jobs and just telling them, well, you can learn to code. I mean, that's not how we work in America. Uh, So it will be fairly easy for us to take on whichever one of those crazies actually comes out of their nomination. And uh, we're fully prepared to uh, to go to battle uh, against them.
1: Mark Lauder, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to have more on the 2020 elections coming up on The Buck Sexton Show.
0: Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. It's Madison Jessiato here in the Freedom Hunt, filling in for Buck Sexton today. Uh, and I want to talk 2020. I want to talk about the Democrats, the potential of a broker convention, and of course, Who's surging but Bernie Sanders? Take, we're, take a look at these poll numbers. I'm, I'm looking at the Real Clear Politics average right now. Uh, nationwide, we're still seeing Biden up in most of the polls over Bernie just a little bit. Uh, CNN poll, though, Bernie is showing up by three. But we're only a few days away from the Iowa caucus, and we're heading into New Hampshire shortly after that. And right now, we're we're seeing Bernie Sanders surging. We're seeing him leading in Iowa. We're seeing him leading in New Hampshire, Uh He's up in the betting odds. You know, is Bernie Sanders going to be that nominee? And who, who else is rounding out that top five nationally? Well, we have Biden and Bernie, the only ones in the 20s behind them down at around 14 percent. Elizabeth Warren under her. We have Bloomberg and Buttigieg. Is Biden is Bernie? Who's who, who's going to be that nominee? Could it be neither of them? Because you got to keep in mind the reality of what the Democrats are facing right now. And the reality is that the Democrats are up against a president who has made and kept promises to the American people. Hundreds of promises made, promises kept. I know the president has a website, promiseskept.com, I think it is. And you can go look at all of them, and they're in categories. The economy, courts, uh, the list goes on, immigration. And he's made and kept these promises. A lot of people, you know— Back in 2015, 2016, even a lot of conservatives were hesitant to vote for this president because they didn't know if they believed he would do what he said he was going to do. And we've seen it time and time again with politicians, both Democrat and Republican, for many, many years, make all the promises in the world, get into office, and and forget who they're there to serve us, the American people, or you know, on, on a more local or state level, um, when it comes to Congress or or other uh, elected officials, but presidents all the same, they, they made all the promises and they didn't keep them. So people were hesitant, especially when we talked about uh, pro-life issues, constitutional issues. Was President Trump, if he were to become president in 2016, people thought, going to protect the lives of the unborn? Was he going to protect our Second Amendment rights? And ultimately, that's exactly what he did. He not only performed, but he overperformed. On these issues, and this is what the Democrats are up against. I mean, we had the first president, Republican or Democrat ever, to speak at the March for Life just last week. People are really happy with what he's done. Of course, nominating and and securing two seats on the Supreme Court with originalist justices who believe in the text of the Constitution, not liberal activists on the bench. Of course, we see that, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this later. But we're seeing that in in uh, all levels of. of the courts when it comes to the district courts and the Court of Appeals, circuit courts. So we're seeing this. The Democrats recognize this, yet they've continued to do nothing. They waste money. They waste time. We saw what they did on the Russian collusion hoax and the Mueller investigation, Promise that they had evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that President Trump and the Trump campaign colluded with Russia. Of course, we find out that's not true. They are now promising that he's pe He, uh, you know, committed impeachable offenses, and that he should be removed from office. Not going to happen. You see the energy. You know, we're months and months and months out from November, and uh, we covered just two days ago. We covered the rally in New Jersey, and there's going to be a rally, I think, tonight, uh, today, right now, in Iowa. And thousands and thousands of people not only filling the venue, but we saw thousands of people outside, people watching in the the cold on screens outside these venues. This is something in politics we haven't seen in a very, very long time, if ever. I mean, you would think these people are there for the Super Bowl or a sporting event. Politics isn't supposed to be this fun, and people love going to Trump rallies. So he's been able to energize his base, energize his supporters, and, and make it exciting. And how how can these Democrats compete with that? And I think the DNC and the Democratic Party, they recognize that because the policies not only are unaffordable and unrealistic, but these candidates don't exude or inspire energy from their supporters. I mean, Women for Trump launched in the summer, in July of 2019. The president wasn't even at the launch. And there was over a thousand women completely maxed out capacity to, to be there for this. Some of Joe Biden's events where he's at the events himself, there's 30 people. I mean, how can you compete with that? And we saw Hillary struggle with this, of course, in 2016. And it's something that the Democrats have to face. And so they recognize that they're going to have to do something because none of these candidates are going to be able to beat President Trump. Could they go to a brokered convention this summer? I think it's a very real pro- possibility, especially now seeing that we're going to see probably Bernie and Biden both win a lot of primaries, a, a lot, you know, potentially Bernie, of course, winning that Iowa caucus. So could we end up in a brokered convention this summer? Could Hillary Clinton come in and save the day for the Democrats? Maybe. Could it be someone we're not even thinking about? Maybe. Will any of them, even Hillary or someone that they could bring in this summer, be able to beat President Trump? I don't think so. And when we talk about, you know, Bernie specifically, you know, you look back to 16 people, a lot of even Democrats, they they stonewalled him. They made fun of his message. Now they're all embracing it. They're putting forward the socialist policies, of course, none of them affordable. We saw Bernie Sanders grilled by CBS on his plans last week uh, estimates of $60 trillion total spending over the next 10 years, if Bernie were to implement some of these plans. He, of course, doesn't know or care what they cost. Um, some, some experts are saying over $100 trillion. We can't afford this. Medicare for all, a climate plan, forgiveness of student loan debt, free college tuition, and, of course, the best yet, free health care for illegal immigrants. And it's not just Bernie. It's Biden, Steyer, Warren, among others, talking about this. And we saw them raise their hands at at the I think the first debate or second debate saying that, you know, they support this. Um, But the funny thing is is they want to say, you know, Bernie's not part of the swamp. That's what his team wants to tell you. Uh, You know, he's always held these positions. Uh, You know, I want to play this clip clip four on Bernie where he definitely didn't hold this position previously.
3: And so that gets us to the immigration issue. If poverty is increasing and if wages are going down, I don't know why we need millions of people to be coming into this country as guest workers who will work for lower wages than American workers and drive wages down even lower than they are right now.
1: I don't know why we need millions of people coming into this country as guest workers. Isn't this what we've been saying? Oh, wait, this is also what Bernie used to say and President Obama used to say. Flip, flop, flip, flop. Bernie Sanders is part of the swamp, just like the rest of them. He said he's going to change Washington, but don't be fooled by his message. He's just as as much as part of the problem as his fellow candidates, just like Biden. You know, these establishment politicians they want to protect the swamp against President Trump. And he clearly represents a genuine threat to the racket that they've seen in their halls of power in Washington, D.C. And Sanders, you know, he's a self-proclaimed socialist. He's called for a political revolution, but he's no different. He protects his special insider friends who profit from the culture of corruption and greed that has long prevailed in our capital. You know, Peter Schweitzer's book, Profiles of Corruption, uh, outlines this quite nicely, talking about Sanders uh, having used public office to siphon off millions of taxpayer dollars to his own family and friends over the past 30 years. Uh, one of the things that really stuck out to me was $80 million in payments to a media-buying firm owned by two good friends of Sanders's wife. Of course, there's also the case of Burlington College, which was forced to close down. Guess who was mismanaging the case? Sanders's wife president of the school, she secured expensive loans on inflated donor commitments. And some suggest that Sanders may have used his influence to pressure the bank into approving the loan, despite several inconsistencies in the documentation. And so while the government investigated, they closed the investigation on this, they didn't exonerate Sanders or his wife. Even Hillary Clinton, who is the queen of the swamp herself, thinks that, you know, the shtick against corruption is a fraud when it comes to Bernie. She told The Hollywood Reporter he was a career politician, and it's all baloney, and I feel so bad that people got sucked into it. Now, I don't agree with Hillary Clinton on much. In fact, I rarely agree with Hillary Clinton at all. But on this one, she is 100% right. Bernie's a career politician, and people are getting sucked in to a completely fake message. He's deeply immersed in the swamp. He doesn't even want to call out Joe Biden, who, as you know, that former vice president cozied up to Delaware credit card companies and banks when he was in the Senate, leading the bankruptcy legislation that protected the predatory companies at the expense of the American citizens. And we all know about his efforts to protect his son from the corruption probing Ukraine. We're seeing it play out right now throughout this impeachment trial. And it's, of course, all thanks to a liberal crusade to remove our great president from office. We got to get to the bottom of this. But Sanders, of course, refuses to call out Biden or his son by name. He insists that, you know, on many occasions that Biden's not corrupt. And he, he even repudiated his own supporters that called out Biden for obvious ethical shortcomings. And even if you wanted to say Sanders is trying to avoid appearing too critical of his Democratic opponents, the timidity makes it clear that he could not be counted on to confront the corruption from the White House. And what do we want as American people? We want to see the end of the corruption. And our nation deserves better. Our president's been fighting. He's been fighting for us on this. This is something that Democrats and Republicans let simmer for far too long. It's time to put the fire out. We can't afford any more corruption in Washington, D.C. The time's now. There is no more time that we can waste letting more corrupt Career politicians go to Washington. And I don't just mean for the presidency. We need to be keeping an eye on this when we vote for Congress as well. But Bernie Sanders is definitely part of that swamp, and he's no different than the rest of them. You know, we're going to have more on this and so much more when we're back on The Buck Sexton Show.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. It's Madison Giciato. In today for Buck Sexton, Get this. An Iowa man convicted of sex crimes, a felon is no longer deemed a threat because of his gender change to a woman. So the officials in Iowa have determined that a convicted child molester is to be released from incarceration. They explain that the offender's reduction in testosterone levels from his transition from a man to a woman, puts the individual at a lower risk of reoffending. And people in Iowa are furious, and and I'm with them. This is insane. It's something that I don't think 10 years ago we would have even imagined. Now, of course, it's somewhat of a loophole when it comes to how this happened. But people are speaking up about this. So a spokesperson for the attorney general's office says, you know, they don't believe that they have evidence sufficient to prove that Josie Smith, which is the man's now female name, which used to be Joseph Matthew Smith, has a significant chance of reoffending. So they talk about those hormone levels. Um, Now, he's, he, she's going to be released from confinement, but the costs for the motion to dismiss the case are going to be taxed to the state and paid for by the people. I wouldn't want to pay for this. This is ridiculous. Now, There's one thing somewhat positive in this, and that's the fact that Smith is still going to be subject to strict sex offender reporting requirements for those that commit these crimes. But is this a loophole that people start taking advantage of? Anytime that you commit a sex offense, you're going to change your gender and get out of prison? I want to keep an eye on this story. And while this really bothers me, there's something else out there that's really bothered me. Uh, Super Bowl ad of abortion survivors. Take a listen to this clip we have of the ad.
3: Will you
6: look me in the eye?
3: Can you look me in the eye and tell me that I shouldn't be alive?
6: Can you tell me that I didn't deserve to survive? One reality binds us together.
0: One event we all share. One choice tried to steal our
2: lives.
6: but we survived. We are the survivors of choice. We are the faces of choice. I am the face of choice.
5: I am choice.
1: If that doesn't pull at your heartstrings, I don't know what does. It's an ad from the pro-life group, Faces of Choice. And they're calling out Fox Sports for allegedly refusing to approve the ad that they wanted to run during this year's Super Bowl. I'm actually heading down to the Super Bowl this weekend. uh, But for all those that are going to be watching from home, they're not going to see this ad. Faces of Choice submitted the ad to Fox didn't hear anything. They were originally told by Fox that they would receive word on whether or not their application had been accepted by October. Of course, no answer was given. They were repeatedly stonewalled. The ad was submitted in July. And Gillett, of, of the Faces of Choice group, says she thinks it's clever what they're doing. If they directly said no then they could say, this, of course, is asinine. Look at the suitable ad that Fox rejected. But they didn't directly say no. And she's claimed that they've ignored them, wasted their time, and refused to give an answer to avoid having to run the ad. Abortion survivors, once again, being ignored. It's not the first time we've seen this. And we've seen the discrimination not only against abortion survivors, but against the pro-life movement. This is something that many of you know and I've talked about on Buck show that I experienced as a law student at Ohio State, even receiving threats of violence and threats of rape and death because of my views on abortion. And it's rampant in Hollywood. It's rampant in in the television industry. There's no respect or protection for the lives of the unborn. It's something we've been working towards We need to see a change in. I'm disappointed that we're not going to see this ad on Sunday. And I think they should keep keep speaking up about this because I can tell you right now, we're not going to sit back and let this happen. It's simply unacceptable. We'll be back for another hour of the Buck Sexton Show right after this.
0: Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, everyone, we're back for another hour of the Buck Sexton show. It's Madison Jaciato here in the Freedom Hut filling in for Buck Sexton. You know, we're going to be talking about the economy. We're going to be talking about millennials and socialism, the coronavirus and more. But first, I want to bring in a special guest we have with us in this hour, Kaylee McEnany. She's the Trump 2020 campaign press secretary. She's the former spokesperson at the RNC and a Harvard Law graduate. Kaylee, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Madison. You know, I want to talk to you about women for Trump. So this Boston Globe article comes out a few days ago, uh, and they they quote a woman named Alice from Michigan, and she talks about, you know, they ask her about the prospect of, of a female president. And she says, you know, it would make me so excited to vote for a woman for president. I do think I'll see one in my lifetime, and as the mother of a daughter, it would especially thrill me. But, of course, as as we hear all across the country— Alice didn't vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016. She voted for Donald Trump in 2016, and she's expecting to vote for him again. And when they asked her why, she said, Hillary is an elitist Democrat who doesn't care about women like me. She wondered if liberal women would even be willing to vote for female candidates like Nikki Haley, Ivanka Trump, or Condoleezza Rice, if you know th- these were to be candidates in the future. Is this something you're hearing on the campaign trail when you talk to women?
7: Absolutely. I mean, she makes a good point. Look, if you are a, a person who cares about issues that women care about, which I would argue are the full panoply of issues, um, but, but specifically issues like childcare, paid um, pay family leave and issues that motivate new moms, for instance, you can't help but look at President Trump and see he is the most pro woman president we've ever had. The results don't lie. And, you're, um, and, and I and women- have to
1: pause you there, Kaylee, because you're a new mom yourself. So you understand this, you know, better than anybody right now uh, as to why women are thinking about the future of this nation and why they're thinking about who's going to produce the most prosperous future for their children.
7: Exactly. And on an issue like paid family leave in particular, uh, which Ivanka Trump has heralded uh, and President Trump has pushed forward 2.1% million federal employees now have access to it. It's so important. I know more than ever with the 10-week-old how important it is uh, to be able to be with your young one. Uh, And now more women, uh, more families have access to that because of this president. And so I think conservative voters around the country, conservative women look and say, hey, we'd love to have a female president sometime, but we want the president who who implements results that best affect us and our families. And the answer is very clearly President Trump and none of the crazies over on the Democrat side.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, since all the way back in 2015, uh, there's been this narrative out there coming from the mainstream media and coming from the Democrats that President Trump doesn't support women. And as a woman uh, who's worked, you know, obviously with President Trump, I've talked about my experience as to why I don't believe this is true. And it certainly hasn't been my experience. But I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about your experience working for the president uh, and how he supported you and other women on, on the campaign trail.
7: Yes, he absolutely does. You know, he's someone who truly listens um, and takes counsel from all those around him. If you notice, uh, the people he's put in power are, are women, are Kellyanne Conway and Sarah Sanders. Stephanie Grisham, all throughout the White House and our campaign, uh, the same thing. You know, he's someone who he really listens when you talk to him. He'll ask for your opinion. He asks about your family. Uh, he truly cares about the individual um, and has chosen to empower women all throughout the White House in the campaign. Um, he's someone who is completely demonized by the media. But you know, I can tell you firsthand, as you can, Madison, that he's truly um, a great guy who truly is motivated by working for the American people um, as the Democrats pursue impeachment.
1: Yeah, You know, and as someone who supports women, President Trump has has made it a focus to, of course, make policies and, and push policies that make the lives of American women better. And so since Inauguration Day in 2017, uh, what do you think have maybe been a few of the highlights of what he's been able to do uh, outside of what you mentioned earlier to benefit women in this country?
7: Yeah, if you look at, um, you know, first, the unemployment rate, uh, 65-year low for women, he'll always say, I'm sorry about that. I wish it was a historic low, as it is for um, Black and Hispanic Americans. But 65-year low is is pretty amazing uh, for female unemployment. And there was an article recently that more women are now being employed in the workforce than men. Uh, That's a huge deal. Um, Women are really succeeding in the Trump economy. um, But at the same time, I mean, treasuring families, another thing that he's done, which I think is so important is he's almost doubled the federal budget for child care. Uh, So for women in low-income communities who we all know child care is exorbitantly expensive, um, daycare or or whatever you choose to pursue, Um, and for him to double the federal budget to help low-income women uh, pursue their their working professional goals but also uh, to have access to childcare is a very big deal. I mean, those are just a few. uh, There's many more uh, that the president has accomplished.
1: And there's so many more. And one of the things I think the president has taken pride in is the fact that he's someone who stood up for the forgotten man and woman of the United States of America. And so not only has he been there and of course supported women, but, but he's helping everybody rise. He's made the country a place where businesses and families can succeed. Uh, people off of food stamps, once again, feeding their families. There's, you know, That's that's priceless. Uh, you've been traveling the country, and you were, I think, at the rally uh, a couple days ago and in, in, in Iowa today. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? I mean, it's incredible the energy, I think, that we're seeing when it comes to people at these rallies, not only filling the venues, but thousands of people watching from outside. And you've posted some really great videos talking to some of these people that wait for hours, sometimes days. Uh, to see their great president. Uh, Tell me about what you're seeing out there across the country.
7: Yeah, you know, it was amazing, Madison, because I do go to every single rally um, and beyond that other events like bus tours and speeches. So I I really do get to see a wide array of voters in the United States and talk to them. And I can tell you, I have never before um, at any other rally seen what I I saw in New Jersey. You know, it's, it's routine for President Trump to pack a house Uh, with people waiting outside, watching from a jumbotron. It's routine to see people camping out the night before. Uh, But what has not been routine is in a deep, deep, deep blue state like New Jersey to see literally thousands of people in sleeping bags the night before the rally. I I showed up, and it was just so evident you could feel it that something's going on in this country uh, maybe a 1984 type landslide like Ronald Reagan had where that map was just redder and redder and redder um, because the, what I saw the kind of support he got in New Jersey is really something to behold you know Joe Biden can't fill a front row uh, in, in a blue state um, but boy uh, go to a red state and I wonder you know who would show up for Joe um, or Bernie or whomever but President Trump doesn't matter where he goes he packs the house.
1: And you mentioned a little bit earlier about impeachment. Do you think part of this is a result of the way the American people feel about impeachment, about the Russian collusion hoax, about the waste of taxpayer time and money uh, that's that's been spent in Congress?
7: I have no doubt that that's the case. It's the contrast. You know, we just saw the president sign the USMCA, a huge deal, ripped up NAFTA, and he negotiated a better deal with Canada and Mexico, and you contrast that with what we then saw in you know, a split screen of Adam Schiff up there, the House managers trying to take down a sitting president, overturn the will of the American people, uh, the contrast couldn't be more evident. And this impeachment proceeding, I think it just put a lightning rod through the Trump base. I also think it's added to the Trump base. I think there's more Democrats coming over, more independents coming over. Um, our polling shows how vulnerable congressional Democrats are uh, who are in districts that President Trump won after their impeachment vote. So there, there's something going on in impeachment certainly um, has been a motivator for the Trump coalition
1: in a huge issue back in the campaign trail in 2015 and 2016 of course was immigration and this is I think something that's going to continue to remain front and center as we head towards November Uh, what do you think are some of the president's biggest wins on immigration of course we had the SCOTUS decision come out on the side of the president uh, just this month so what do you think we can expect moving forward on that issue
7: yeah, you know, I, I think the wall, certainly, you're going to see um, miles and miles of fencing um, and, and wall border barriers, um, you know, what is appropriate in a given area built by uh, Election Day, and, and many, much of it already built already. So building the wall is big. Um, immigration enforcement, um, also making sure that the people coming into our country um, are, are, you know, good, hardworking people who you know are pursuing the American dream, um, making sure that legal immigration, that there's a place for that. You know, I, that's something that I think is underemphasized. Um, you know, I was at a, the rally uh, two nights ago in New Jersey, and a woman came up to me and said, you know, my brother waited seven years in line to get in this country. He did it the legal way, uh, waiting to come here. And just today, he got his paper saying he's welcome, uh, he can come to this country. And he, she said, my mom is just overjoyed. Um, so, you know, there is a place for legal immigration, but there's a place, an important place for border security and finding that balance. Is what this president has done. Um, so I'm very proud of his accomplishments on immigration, um, as I think many are across the nation are.
1: Sure. And so many of us have stories of family members that have come and done it the right way and, you know, waited a long time to do that. And so we definitely sympathize and understand. And, you know, we're really proud of this president on the issue of immigration. Kaylee, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations to you and your husband on the addition to your beautiful family. And we look forward to seeing your videos from tonight's rally in Iowa. Thank you, Madison. Have a great show. Thanks. We'll be back with more on the economy after this break.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
1: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. As we head through another hour, and we just talked to Kaylee McEnany, and she mentioned a lot about the economy, but- I think it's important to take an even deeper dive into the economy. We've seen the president fight every single day since elected for American families. And what has been his strongest point? The economy. The economic numbers. More than 7.3 million jobs added since he took office. Of course, over half of these going to women. One and a half million women alone lifted out of poverty in just two years. Of President Trump's administration alone. And from the very beginning, we heard the Democrats talk about recession. We're going to see a recession three, four or five times. Everybody needs to brace for the next great recession. I'm still waiting. We haven't seen a recession. And as you know, the country awoke to the news that President Trump had won. And guess what happened? The stock market skyrocketed upwards. Yet, we saw liberal economist Paul Krugman inexplicably prophesize in the New York Times that we're going to face a global recession with no end in sight. Less than a week later, he wrote about the impeding Trump slump, and he wasn't the only one. Matt Krantz, USA Today, thought a recession was on the way because Trump's a Republican president, and that was before Trump even took office. And, you know, we come to his inauguration. We saw strong Growth, impressive job creation, like I mentioned, over 7 million jobs created. And the media continue with this pessimistic tune even just a few months ago. Quinn Hillier was certain last year that the recession was on the horizon because of the tariffs of the Trump administration. Get ready for rough times, he wrote, predicting the crash is going to come by this past fall and advising people to buy gold, hoard cash, stocked up on canned foods. Even when the end of the year came and no recession had arrived, economist Evan Kraft absurdly accused Trump of readying a scapegoat for his eventual failure. During the whole time period, economic growth across the nation has been strong. Unemployment, of course, historic lows. We've heard it over and over again a 50 year low overall, all time low for women, all time low for Black Americans, all time low for Hispanic Americans. Wages are growing at the fastest rate in over a decade. By virtually any conceivable measure of progress in the economy, in the labor market, the Trump presidency has been a resounding success from the beginning, from day one. But here we are again, and now we're seeing that it's the inverted yield curve, and we heard about this I think a year ago too, on treasury bonds that has journalists convinced Of course, they're stock market experts now, too, all the journalists. But they're convinced that we're going to fall off the economic cliff. Their poorly concealed glee, which is, I think, the sickest part about all of it. Uh, You hear a lot of these mainstream media commentators and journalists talk about this almost as if they want to see us head into a recession. Maybe it wouldn't affect them or their families. Maybe it's not going to affect Nancy Pelosi or Bernie Sanders, who have become rich off of corruption. But it'll affect my family and your family, families across middle America and the rest of the country, where a recession could destroy us. So their poorly concealed glee in the press corps uh, at the thought of economic calamity is just unconscionable. This this just drives me, I think, nuts more than anything else when it comes to their, their commentary on the economy. And the idea that millions of Americans could plunge into hardship really seems to do nothing but dampen their excitement over one thing that would give them a chance of defeating Trump in the 2020 election. That's all they want. They know that with a strong economy and historically knowing that people vote based off their pocketbooks, you know, are you better now than you were three years ago? That's the make question. And people are better now than they were three years ago. So I have some bad news for these folks. Trump has great odds of winning re-election. There's no way that this is not going to have an impact. The economy, of course, moves in cycles, but we're seeing an economy that is so strong, like really nothing we've seen, nothing I've seen in my lifetime, nothing we've seen as a country in a very long time, I want to hit these numbers one more time. Over 7 million jobs created. 500,000 manufacturing jobs created since the president was elected. Remember when Obama told us that manufacturing jobs would never come back? Well, guess what, America? They're back. Unemployment rate at that 50-year low of 3.5%. We had a highlight of, you know, those recent jobs reports in November, December, both higher than what had been expected. Uh, African-American unemployment Record low, around 5%, 5 5.5%. Hispanic unemployment, again, near record low, 4.2%. Asian American unemployment, 2.6%, a a historic low. Women unemployment remained steady at that near record low of 3.5%. And, of course, the approval rating of this president among small business owners, 60%, an all-time high. Dow Jones Industrial Average hit records over 100 times under this president. 6.2, 6.2, over 6.2 now million people have come off of food stamps. And the Congress, work with, of course, support of the president, passed the historic Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. This was a relief, not only for businesses, but for the hardworking men and women of our nation. As a result of these tax cuts and and in Jobs Act, we were able to see 9,000 opportunity zones created in all 50 states, D.C., and five territories. So what are the opportunity zones going to do? Well, guess what? These are going to spur $100 billion in private capital investment and impact nearly 35 million Americans. We doubled the child care tax credit, which was great for American families. Uh, and we rolled back you know, those unnecessary job-killing regulations. This is something as business owners, as citizens, we've been complaining about for a long time. All the red tape, all the regulations. So I was certainly happy when this administration cut eight and a half regulations for every new rule. And that, of course, far exceeded their promise to us, which was to cut two regulations for every one added. As a result of this, we've seen regulatory cost completely slashed, nearly $50 billion And it saved taxpayers $220 billion once all implemented. The deregulation efforts are even helping individual American households at an estimated $3,100 a year. The economy is strong. The economy is booming. It's a result of these conservative economic policies put into effect by our president. Economic confidence rebounded to a record high under our president. And we saw years of economic despair under President Obama. People voted in 2016 for change, the change that was promised to them in 2008. They wanted real economic change, and they're seeing that under President Trump. We're going to be back on the Buck Sexton Show. In a few minutes.
0: Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show Podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. I'm Madison Jesse Otto, filling in today for Buck Sexton. So this is a very interesting one. We have Elizabeth Warren unveiling her plan to police disinformation. She wants to make it a crime. She's proposed a plan that seems to have two main parts. One promising to hold people uh, who knowingly disseminate false information about when and how to vote in U.S. elections accountable. Uh, The other promises to hold social media platforms accountable, which, of course, is very sticky territory. Uh, So we'll see ultimately how this plan uh, pans out. But what's rich about this? The fact that Elizabeth Warren, the Massachusetts senator, has built her campaign on a foundation of misinformation, misrepresentations, and exaggerations. The non-Native, Native American, Elizabeth Warren. You know, it's common knowledge by now that Warren, one of the you know top four contenders right now for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination, identified as Native American for personal gain. Was she Native American? One 1,024th, maybe, not even a percent. She had zero experience in tribal life. Of course, this isn't her only misrepresentation, but let's let's take a listen to this clip of her
6: apology for this one in clip nine. I want to say this. Like anyone who's being honest with themselves, I know that I have made mistakes. I am sorry for harm I have caused. I have listened and I have learned a lot. And I am grateful for the many conversations that we've had together. It is a great honor to be able to partner with Indian Country. And that's what I've tried to do as a senator. And that's what I promise I will do as president of the United States of America. You know, it still blows my mind that this didn't completely
1: sink her in the Democratic Party. It's like they don't even care. If it were someone in the Republican Party that pretended to be a Native American when they weren't, they'd be demolished. Elizabeth Warren goes on her interview before this apology, saying that, you know, she's sorry that at some point in time she identified as Native American, but that's just what she believed. She thought maybe she was Native American, but she knew it was wrong. But she did it anyways. Of course, like I said before, it doesn't stop here. The non-Native Native American Elizabeth Warren isn't the only lie. Let's talk about when she misled voters about sending her son to private school repeatedly telling people her kids went to public school. No, her son went to private school. And of course, this is a woman campaigning against the school choice program, which of course would give other children advantages that her children had. But, you know, we see this time and time again with the elitists, just like when we talk about the gun control issue. They don't want us to have guns to protect ourselves, our families, our communities. They don't want people in dangerous areas to be able to protect themselves. Look at Chicago, Chicago look at New York City, look at a lot of these urban areas where people need to be able to protect themselves more than ever, and they can't. But they have armed security to protect them. They don't want to put a border wall on our southern border. But guess what? They have fences and security around their homes. It's another example of complete hypocrisy. And Elizabeth Warren is one of the worst when it comes to this. And let's not forget the fact that she's repeatedly invoked tales about her family's economic struggles. She talks about growing up, and she talks about this on the campaign trail. And of course, she wants to win these blue-collar voters on her appeal to the middle class. But she's now a multimillionaire. Elizabeth Warren isn't part of the middle class. She's fibbed more than once on her family's background. Her brother, Elizabeth Warren's own brother, told the Boston Globe, my dad was never a janitor and said it makes him furious furious I quote him that Warren has repeatedly claimed otherwise on the campaign trail Ask her constituents in Massachusetts she promised to serve her full senate term after reelected of course she runs for president announces just a few weeks after and let's not forget about this Elizabeth Warren claims that she was fired for being pregnant. But her own interview, from earlier on, seems to say otherwise. Take a listen.
6: So my first teaching position was as a special needs teacher. There we go. Uh, I worked, it was in a public school system, but I worked with the, the children with disabilities. I loved that job. But by the end of the first school year, I was quite visibly pregnant, and I was pregnant with my first baby, so I had a baby uh, and stayed home for a couple of years, and I was really casting about, thinking, what am I going to do? And uh, my husband's view of it was, stay home. And the principal didn't invite me back for the next school year. And um, I did that for a year. And then that summer, um, I I actually didn't have the education courses, so I was on an emergency certificate, it was Mm -hmm. called. And I went back to graduate school and took a couple of courses in education and said, I don't think this is going to work out for me. Mm -hmm. And the principal didn't invite me back for the next school year. (laughs) And the principal didn't invite me back for the next school year. I I actually didn't have the education courses, so I was on an emergency certificate. I don't think this is going to work out for me. Elizabeth Warren, fired for being pregnant.
1: Doesn't sound like that was the case. You heard her in her own words. What is she going to do? Her husband told her, stay home. And then she says she didn't have the courses. She had to go back to school. She has a history in a long time relationship with exaggerating the truth. But somehow, she's still up there. And we look back at those polls we talked about earlier, and I, I look at those Real Clear Politics, and we see Elizabeth Warren in the top four in Iowa, in the top four in New Hampshire, in the top four in the betting odds, in, in the top four in the Real Clear Politics average of all polls. It's unreal the hypocrisy on the left. Because again, if this were someone on the right doing the same thing, if this were Ivanka Trump saying she got fired from somewhere because she had been pregnant, they would destroy her. If this were any Republican saying they were Native American when they weren't Native American, it would be the end of of their political careers. But somehow, Elizabeth Warren has nine lives in the Democratic Party. It's just not right. We're going to be talking about some more hypocrisy when it comes to millennials and socialism after this break.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back as we finish out the second hour of the Buck Sexton Show. I'm Madison Jesiato here in for Buck Sexton in New York City. So I want to talk about millennials and socialism. I'm a millennial myself, and these polls that continue to come out just astound me. Pew recently put out a poll where a third of young Americans say other countries are better than the United States. And nearly half of young Democrats in that same poll say that other countries are better than the United States. Of course, we need to couple this with the YouGov poll. We've all heard about previously, where 44% of people between the ages of 16 and 29 say they'd prefer to live in a socialist nation over a capitalist country. But of course, these people don't even know what socialism is. In the UGOV poll, only 33% of respondents were able to accurately define socialism. Here in the United States, 70% of millennials say they'd vote for a socialist candidate. The reality is this. Socialism leads to destitution. It leads to misery. Socialism has killed millions and millions of people worldwide. Yet you have people like Bernie Sanders out there. And of course, as you know, he's surging. As we talked about before, we see those poll numbers. His policies are completely socialist, similar to what we see in some of these failed countries. They would never work. tries to point to countries like Norway saying, oh, but look, socialism does work. Completely, of course, ignoring the failures of countries like Albania, Algeria, Angola, Burma, the Congo, Cuba, Ethiopia, Laos, Somalia, Vietnam, Yemen, Venezuela. I mean, Bernie Sanders and... All millennials have seen the effects of socialism on Venezuela. We've seen the people who have been devastated by socialism in Venezuela with our own eyes, with news coverage just over the past year. Socialism is not the future of this country. We've heard our president say many times that we will never be a socialist country. And while, of course, this remains true, I don't believe we're ever going to become a socialist country. It doesn't change the fact that we're seeing many millennials supporting or saying that they support socialism. Again, 70% of millennials saying they'd vote for a socialist candidate in a poll from October. Why are we seeing this? Well, I think there's many reasons. One of those reasons being misinformation, fake news. We see the rapid spread of misinformation on social media, on the Internet, of course, with many millennials going to places like Facebook and Twitter as their first source of news, having no idea where this is coming from, much of it being completely false. We've seen the studies done where fake information is put out there and, uh, even after corrected, if it comes from a regular news source, most people don't ever see the corrections. I mean, we, we even see that with, with some of the more famous rape cases where people were falsely accused of rape. The alleged victims are proven to be liars. It comes out that these guys never raped anybody. But still to this day, their lives are devastated from these allegations. So the fake news is rampant. And we see this with socialism. And we see a lot of young people talking about, Bernie supporters specifically, talking about socialism on Twitter, attacking those who don't believe in socialism. It's very cult-like when you see some of, some of the supporters' views on this. But it's not just that. We have to take a look at our schools, high schools, college campuses, and liberal indoctrination. You now, Buck's talked about this. We've all talked about this for many years now. And the liberal indoctrination that we're seeing, I think we're finally starting to see the effects of that in the views of these millennials, because the reality is they're not getting an accurate lesson on history, not only on the history of our nation, but on the history of the world. They don't understand the dangers of socialism or communism the way that our parents and grandparents understood these dangers. They believe the misinformation. They're not receiving any real information in their schooling, and as a result, look at look at the poll numbers. Look at what we're seeing. Of course, some people talk about the economic crisis uh, of two thousand eight, two thousand nine, that may have an impact on on people wanting young people. I guess wanting to shift away from capitalism. I don't believe that. I don't buy that. I think it's a complete lack of understanding, a complete unwillingness to to understand the real facts. And then when you, you have them pushing socialism, and when asked about it, of course, they don't even know how you could pay for it. Take a listen to this clip. I feel like everyone should have like um, free um, education and healthcare.
3: How are we gonna pay for those?
1: Oh God, I mean,
3: Us. Us, I guess. Who, in your mind, should pay for all of the free things?
1: All of the free things? Well, some of it should come from taxes, but the government should pay for it.
3: But the government is funded by taxes.
1: Yeah.
3: I don't know where the money would come from, but they can figure it out. Okay. (laughs) The people with a good idea and a good
5: reason to spend their tax money wouldn't mind actually paying more taxes.
1: (laughs) They don't know where the money's going to come from. Because guess what? There's not enough money to pay for all of the policies that people like Bernie Sanders are putting forward. Bernie Sanders being slammed by his own party and some of the mainstream media over this over the past few months. We saw it in in a CBS interview. Even one of his socialist proposals, like Medicare for all, estimated to cost over $32 trillion. Even with an extreme tax on the wealth that the Democrats have talked about, You wouldn't even be able to pay for a portion of one of these plans, let alone all of them, which some experts estimate would cost over $100 trillion. They're unaffordable. They wouldn't work. They've never worked in other countries. They're certainly not going to work here. And I can tell you right now, as much as we have, a lot of millennials and a lot of people my age, as disappointing as it is, that are very misinformed and believe this to a certain extent, This isn't going to be the future of our country. And we have to do more now to prevent future generations from falling into the same traps that some of these millennials have fallen into. It's more frustrating than than anything. We have to put a stop to this. And... We're going to be back after this break with more on The Buck Sexton Show. We're going to be talking about the coronavirus. Stay tuned.
0: Thanks for listening to The Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. We're in hour three, and we have a lot to cover this hour, but I want to get started talking about the coronavirus. And we're really lucky to have a great guest on to share some very valuable insight with you. I have Dr. Ray Kashari on the phone right now. Dr. Kashari, internal medicine physician, pulmonologist, intensive care specialist. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Well, good to be here, Madison.
1: You know, so people across the country and across the world are very concerned about the coronavirus. First of all, can you kind of fill people in what exactly is the coronavirus? Where did it get its name? What, what is it? What should people be worried about?
4: So this is a, a group of viruses that um, include the SARS virus and the MERS virus. Uh, both of those viruses occurred in the past, and, and, and they, they tend to affect people a lot like the common cold. The virus gets its name from the way it looks. It looks like a crown. So that's where the coronavirus comes from. It has absolutely nothing to do with alcohol or beer or Mexico. So so let's get that on the table right away that uh, has nothing to do with that.
1: Okay, so is this cause for alarm? Should people be as concerned as they are or should they be more concerned than what we're seeing right now?
4: I think that uh, actually there's been some sensationalism regarding the risk to people in the United States. Okay. Um the the uh, the virus is in uh is new. It's called a novel virus because uh, it, doesn't, it, it hasn't existed before this time. Therefore, nobody in the world has immunity to this virus. So that's what gives people cause for alarm because they are concerned that they don't have immunity. In addition, there's no vaccine for the virus again, because it's a new virus and um, there is no treatment for the virus. So that that all creates cause for alarm. However, let's put the virus in perspective. In the United States this year, there have been 15 million people affected with influenza virus. There have been, unfortunately, 8,000 deaths due to influenza virus. The coronavirus has resulted in seven cases in the United States. All of those cases have been um, due to travel. There's been no human-to-human transmission in the United States. There's been no deaths in the United States. There has been 7,000 infections worldwide and 170 deaths worldwide, all of those in China. So the death rate is not as high as it is with the SARS virus. So yes, you have to be concerned, but certainly put it in perspective, and, and this is not the apocalyptic event that is being d- talked about on television
1: right now we, we are getting a first report in that it has been confirmed that we've had our first human-to-human transmission here in the United States is that something people should be worried about or do you still think this is an over sensationalized uh, concern that people have right now
4: well human-to-human transmission is obviously the pivotal thing to be concerned about because that that is uh, that implies the virus has mutated to that point, and it also implies that the virus has a high degree of, of, of contagiousness. So um, that's obviously a concern. And the reports out of China uh, that medical the medical personnel are getting the virus, that is also a concern. And the reason that's a concern is that um, medical personnel in general, are very careful in terms of their technique. So when it's spread like that to medical personnel, it implies a higher degree of uh, contagiousness than, for example, the common cold or something like that.
1: Right. And when we mentioned China and we've seen that they've closed down an entire city in one of the largest quarantines we've ever seen, they have a news black out there. Obviously, the, the news is evolving daily on this. Uh, but do you think China is being a hundred percent honest about the number of cases they've seen, or do you think there's a chance we'll find out that they're not giving us accurate information here in the United States?
4: Well, they did not give us accurate information with the SARS virus, and that was a problem. Um, but we we think that they've kind of learned from that, and that they're they're being more accurate with this. Now there are reports that they delayed acting on this, uh, and, and th- those delays may have been related to the kind of way medicine is practiced in China. I guess uh, one of the health officials said that he had to get permission from the central authority to actually, you know, put into place some of the quarantine and to tell the world about it. Uh, you know, I'm not in position to comment on that. Um, obviously, we, we are depending on China to give us an idea about the incubation period, which is very important, and uh, to give us an idea of the death rates and so on. When you mentioned
1: SARS back in 2003, and I think it's very interesting when we look at then versus now, when we look at the Chinese economy back then was a $1.5 trillion economy uh, with 4% of the global GDP. Right now, China is a 14 point three trillion dollar economy with 16 percent of the global GDP and a big change in China is the fact that 60 percent of people back then lived in rural areas in China now we're seeing a 60 percent urban Chinese population Uh, They're very integrated, obviously, as a country in the global process, uh, a big point of demand for global companies. So we can see this affect uh, the economy. They're more densely packed and they travel a lot more. Eighty million passenger journeys by air in 2003 compared to six hundred sixty million now. And when it comes to air travel, uh, people in the United States and across the world are are very concerned about potentially contracting the coronavirus. Uh, What specifically when it comes to air travel plans should people be aware of or uh, do to protect themselves?
4: Well, of course, first, I would not go to China right now. I, I don't think that makes any kind of sense. Um, when you get on an airplane, you you don't know what biomass has been on that plane before you got on it. And years ago, the planes used to sit idle for two to three hours before they reloaded them. Now they turn the plane over in 15 minutes. So that means that the viruses, the bacteria, anything that has been on that plane is going to still be viable and that what that means is when you get on the plane if you touch something the virus is now in your hands if your hands then touch your eyes your nose or your mouth you have a chance of, of uh, contracting that that virus so if anybody does plane travel right now what you want to do is get on the plane clean the area that around you clean everything you're going to touch And clean your own hands, and then keep your hands away from your face. That's the best thing you can do right now. Um, The other thing you can do is wear cotton gloves. And cotton gloves do a couple things. One, they they don't tend to pick the viruses up from what you touch as much, and they also kind of prevent you from touching your face because you're aware that you have something on your hands, so you're less likely to touch your face. Um, Right. That's that's kind of the way it works.
1: Right. And outside of plane travel, is there anything else people can be doing to prevent the spread of the virus? Uh, now, like I said, as we have reports coming in now that we've seen that very first human to human contact transmission of the virus. Uh, what can people be aware of? Uh, it, not even just here, but, you know, all around the world, uh, if they're traveling even to other countries where someone may have come from China uh and you know, could be infected or not even know it yet when we talk about not knowing the exact incubation period on this new virus?
4: Well, I think around the world, people are screening everybody coming from China, so that's a good thing. Um, the other thing, of course, is if you're in an environment where there's uh, somebody coughing, sneezing, try to avoid the droplets, and then practice the hand hygiene I already talked about, I think the World Health Organization is pretty much on top of this. The one thing they're trying to do, and the CDC is trying to do this too, is get a faster identification test because right now, if you suspect coronavirus, you have to take a sample and then mail it to the CDC. The CDC gets a report and gets back to you. Well, that's like a two day process. So they're trying to get a more rapid test, which will help tremendously.
1: Okay. Now, when it comes to population specifically, outside of obviously people in China, are there populations that are at the most risk right now?
4: Well, always with viral infections. It's the old, the young, and the infirmed. So people who are old, over 65 to 70, and people who are young, less than one year, uh, and people who have illnesses for other reasons, certainly cancer chemotherapy patients or patients who are on any kind of immune suppressants Uh, are the most likely to be affected, seriously.
1: Okay, and when it comes to the vaccine that you mentioned earlier, obviously we don't have one yet, uh, but I understand there's human trials starting. How long can people expect until they may be able to go and get a vaccine for the coronavirus?
4: Well, normally vaccines take months to years to develop. Now, they're trying to develop a rapid vaccine um, and there, there is some technology that may indicate that this can be done. But at the moment, um, we don't know if that technology will work. And generally, when you get a brand-new vaccine, you test it to find out are there side effects and, and is the vaccine effective. Well, there won't be time for that. So uh, this is all very uh, new ground Um, there's they're trying to develop the vaccine within three to six months and then they have to uh, they have to do some kind of testing to make sure that it's at least safe so I don't think the vaccine is going to work it's going to get us out of this it may get us out of the next one but it's probably not going to get us out of this one
1: and until we have a vaccine uh, if young healthy people are to get this can they fight it
4: oh absolutely yeah most of the people who get this particular coronavirus have a very mild illness. I mean, over 80% have an illness equivalent to, like, the common cold. There's only less than 5% that actually die, and, and the, the uh, remaining uh, 15% have a kind of a serious illness that doesn't result in any permanent sequelae. So the overwhelming majority of the people who get the virus are recovering.
1: That's definitely good news to hear. Uh, we're going to be keeping a close eye on this, and we appreciate you for coming on, Dr. Kashari.
4: All right, Madison. Thank you.
1: Thank you. And we'll be back shortly on The Buck Sexton Show.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is The Buck Sexton Show podcast.
1: Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show here in the Freedom Hut. Madison Josiotto, I'm filling in today for Buck Sexton, USMCA signed, sealed, delivered, finally, free, fair, reciprocal trade. That's what President Trump has been pushing for since day one. And of course, wanting to put America first instead of letting us continue to be taken advantage of by other countries, which is what we saw happen under both Republican and Democratic administrations past. The president treated out, tweeted out, for the first time in American history, We've replaced a disastrous trade deal that rewarded outsourcing with a truly fair and reciprocal trade deal that will keep jobs, wealth and growth right here in America. After being on the table for almost a year, President Trump signed the bipartisan agreement, of course, only having to wait the year because of the Democrats like Nancy Pelosi, who held out on the trade deal, refusing to bring it to a vote. And of course, who did who did she hurt? The American farmers, the American ranchers, the American workers. That's that's who paid for this. That's who she did this at the expense of. She didn't care. And of course, Nancy now wants to take credit. But it only took her 20 seconds of talking about this to start insulting the president. Take a listen to clip six.
6: I want to say that the bill, the, what the president will be signing is quite different from what the president sent us. And because of the work of the House Democrats under the leadership of Richie Neal with his task force, and made tremendous differences in what was proposed originally and what the uh, president will be signing
1: today. I hope he understands what he's signing today. She hopes he understands what he's signing today. Sure, he understands it. He's the one that got it done. He's the one that made the deal. President Trump, before he was a president, when he was just Donald J. Trump, here in New York City was known all across the world for being the best deal maker. He made deals in business, which is part of why some people voted for him and felt he was such a valuable asset to our government, to our nation. As a leader, as somebody who could make deals, we saw Clinton, even George W. Bush in a lot of instances, and Obama, who promised to make all the deals in the world but never made the deals. Thanks to President Trump, we're getting stricter on trade deals. American farmers are no longer ha- going to have to be taken advantage of. This trade deal, the USMCA, is expected to add $68 billion into the United States economy and to add approximately 176,000 jobs. And so while Nancy Pelosi... And the Democrats wanted to play political games. President Trump worked hard. And he wanted to ensure that we'd have the best policy, the best deal for the American people. And here's what he had to say.
2: After NAFTA's adoption more than 25 years ago, the United States lost nearly one-fourth of all of its manufacturing jobs, including more than one in five vehicle manufacturing jobs. Think of that. One in five jobs lost so needlessly. Thousands of factories were shuttered, millions of manufacturing jobs were destroyed, and entire communities were devastated, from Ohio to Pennsylvania, Michigan to Maine, and California to North Carolina, devastated. Two decades of politicians ran for office vowing to replace the NAFTA, and this was a catastrophe, the NAFTA catastrophe. Yet once elected, they never even tried. They never even gave it a shot. They sold out. But I'm not like those other politicians, I guess in many ways. I keep my promises and I'm fighting for the American worker and we're all fighting for the American worker. Everybody here is fighting for the American worker.
1: And of course, USMCA is just one example of his fight for the American worker. Of course, it's a big improvement over the outdated NAFTA. Our trade relationship with Canada and Mexico is now going to be taken into the 21st century. It's going to expand market access and remove unfair trade barriers for our farmers. And what I think is really great is this this isn't it. It just doesn't end with Canada and Mexico. But earlier this month, President Trump signed the monumental phase one China trade deal. And since October, President Trump has signed deals with our four largest trading partners. Of course, China, Japan, Mexico, and Canada. This is something that just hasn't been done. But I think the best part and the funniest part about this is that he snubbed the Democrats at the signing of USMCA because, of course, like I said, they delayed USMCA. And then they wanted to take credit for it when originally they had no interest in, in pushing it through or calling it to a vote at all. So we had Democrats coming out. On Wednesday, slamming the president from him not having them at the signing ceremony. Uh, We had a rep, Richard Neal from Massachusetts, say, perhaps we were not invited to today's event on the South Lawn because our presence would be a prominent reminder of our critical leadership in achieving this deal. I don't know what planet these Democrats are living on. There was no critical leadership on behalf of Nancy Pelosi or rep Richard Neal on USMCA. The critical leadership came from President Trump fighting for the American farmer, fighting for the American worker, and refusing to stop until he made a deal, a deal that produced free, fair, reciprocal trade and a a better result for the American people. We're going to be back on The Buck Sexton Show with more after this.
0: Thanks for listening to The Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, everyone, welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. I'm Madison Jessiato, in for Buck Sexton. Back in 2015 and 2016, something that I really, really looked at as a supporter of President Trump was, was the courts. And I looked at the state of of where we were at and, and where we could potentially go. And we look at uh, many people who support the right to life and are avid supporters of the pro-life movement and the potential of overturning Roe v. Wade, which at one point seemed like it would be impossible with with the makeup of the court. That might not be as far from reality as it once was. And that, of course, is due to President Trump's commitment to putting originalist justices and judges on the bench. These are justices and judges. Of course, we have two amazing Supreme Court justices put in put in by President Trump, Justice Neil Gorsuch and Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who as you know, was just treated horrifically uh, throughout throughout his confirmation process. But regardless, we have two incredible justices now on the bench. And, and these justices are originalists. They look to the text of the Constitution and to what the founders put in the Constitution to make their decisions. It might seem like common sense to you and I, but to some people, it's it's just totally crazy. Because guess what? Some people support liberal activist judges. These liberal activist judges are more dangerous than you can even imagine. These liberal activist judges put in, reading between the lines, whatever they want. So they come to the conclusion of what they they want to see the result be, and then they find a way to get there, instead of looking to the Constitution to determine what the answer should be. So when it comes to the lasting legacy of President Trump, I really believe it's going to lie in His court nominations in the judges that he put on the district courts, in the circuit courts, in the Supreme Court justices. Yes, he has two already, but there's a chance we could see one or two more if he's reelected. So we look forward to November 2020. And this is going to be a more critical time, I think, than ever before, because he continues to reshape the federal judiciary. And he's doing it at a record pace which is something I don't think many people expected. You know, there were people that doubted whether he would do it at all, let alone do it at a record pace. He promised to appoint judges that would uphold the Constitution and the rule of law, and that's exactly what he did. So the Senate's confirmed 12 more of his judicial nominees. Uh, As I said, he's continuing to reshape that judiciary, which is critically important to us when it comes to the protection of uh, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the lives of the unborn, all of the things that we as conservatives and as patriotic Americans really care about. He's installed more federal court judges than any president in the past four decades. Forty years, we haven't seen a president put more judges on the bench. He's nominated and the Senate's confirmed a grand total of 174 Article Three judges. Of course, you already know about those two Supreme Court justices. But on top of that, we have 50 circuit court judges and 133 district court judges. This is truly incredible. And two court of international trade judges. Uh, he's really made a substantial impact already. So what we have to think is what impact could he make with four more years? Re-electing him could mean We see Roe v. Wade overturned. It could mean that our rights will be protected for our children, our children's children, and for so much longer after that. Something we have to keep in mind. And we're going to be right back on The Buck Sexton Show.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is The Buck Sexton Show podcast.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. I'm Madison Jessiato here in New York City in the Freedom Hut filling in for Buck Sexton. Listen to this, a new Gallup poll out saying race relations see a double digit improvement since Trump entered the White House. And I want to bring in my guest on this one. Uh, I have Bruce Lavelle here with me, executive director for the National Diversity Coalition for Trump and someone who's known Trump for a very long time. Bruce, thanks for coming on.
8: Hey, thanks for having me, Madison. Appreciate it.
1: Uh, Of course. We're happy to have you. So you've seen this new Gallup poll out, and it indicates that satisfaction with race relations and the position of minorities in America have significantly increased since President Trump took office. You know, they deliver a significant blow to this media uh, fiction that President Trump is a racist. And you and I have heard this on the campaign trail for many years. Oh, God, Uh, yes, yes. You know, first touch touch a little bit on your experience personally with the president um, as a person of color and what your experience has been like and then we're gonna get into this poll
8: yeah well yeah thanks for having me you know Madison's interesting because I I feel like I'm like an expert on on this subject (laughs) because I you know I I, uh, of course I'm like yourself I've did a little over 400 shows and probably two-thirds of those shows from CNN MSNBC and or related to something race so when I say expert, I think I am in that category. But, you know, interestingly, I, re- I recall back in 2015 on the 26th floor back in August, and I remember we were sitting at a round table about about 100 plus folks that were attending, 90 um, percent plus African-Americans were attending, mainly pastors. Pastor Daryl was there, my, my big brother from another mother, love him to death, is that uh, I recall the president saying, well, at that time, Canada Trump saying he said, you know, the disconnect, especially in the black community, is the opportunity and hope in jobs. And he says, when I get, become president, I'm going I'm to uh, uh, be a champion in terms of getting that unemployment down. And watch this, Madison. And he said, the other thing, too, is restoring uh, black wealth and generational wealth in these black communities. In other words, building small business or like some of the other other colleagues who have generational wealth through the business. This came out of his mouth, Madison, in 2015. And so, in terms of, uh, you know, like yourself, you know, the president very well. I know him very well, and uh, you know, I I was totally just out of, you know, just really upset the fact that the mainstream media and all the folks were trying to paint a narrative of him being a racist when he's not. So, how does a man stay 40 plus years in the limelight for many years? uh, Oprah actually telling him in 1989, you should run for president on her show. You right. Know, We've seen money that
1: clip 40- go viral on, on Twitter. And,
8: yeah. and giving Jesse Jackson, you know, uh, uh, rental space for his 40 wall street in terms of there's rainbow push coalition, helping, uh, uh, Sharpton with some of his uh, initiatives in, the, in New York. You know, the list goes on and on and on. Friends with uh, Herschel Walker, a good friend of mine here in Atlanta. Well, the
1: narrative um, changed yeah. for the media, Bruce, yep. did it not because of the fact that he was running for president, because of the fact that he was running for president as yeah. a Republican.
8: You know, I've always said, it's interesting, Madison, the, 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 one of the biggest voter suppressions out there in the land is to intimidate and persecute a person of color if they think anything outside of the Democrat Party and it's a tool that's been used for many many generations Because you know I'm a lifetime Republican I'm a Reagan Republican you know my first job uh, in the campaign in high school was stuffing envelopes for Ronald Reagan so that's all I've ever known and my dad and my granddad and so but I recall as growing through the, the George H administration the Reagan administration when Bob Dole was on the ticket of course when uh, Clinton beat us you know it was always a constant Persecution, intimidation, name calling, if anyone of color even thought about the conservative movement or the GOP. So it was nothing new in that regards. But it, for some reason, it was a, extremely harsh. You know, in 2016, I was like, oh my Lord, where is this coming from? Is because they, they saw there was an opportunity that when the president says, what the heck do you have to lose? You know, it was very profound. Right. And, and, and you bring you up know, a great well,
1: point there because he's right. What. Not only for minorities, but what did we have to lose as American people after yeah. eight years of economic disparity? It's the way I would describe exactly. it under President Obama. Yeah. And when we look at the survey for, from Gallup, they demonstrate numerous categories in which the president has improved the lives
2: yeah. of
1: of people in minority uh, yeah. status. You know, compared to Barack Obama. You know, when he took office in 2017, here's all all the ways that that life has gotten better. And of course, some of those uh, being economic related and we know the economy has been strong. uh, How how do you think this has played an effect on the president's support um, and race relations when it comes to the rising, booming economy?
8: Well, you know, (laughs) black folk are waking up in the morning, Madison, and there's there's like, you know what? I got a job they're starting to see especially here in Atlanta and parts of Charlotte and Tampa where I'm starting to see black business flourish you know and you know it it gets down to this too you know when people are gainfully employed and they're taking care of their families and they're able to uh, support their families
1: they're off food stamps
8: yeah Not that's people. essentially uh, yeah and and you know the thing is is that one thing I love about this president is that people never give him credit for when he first came out and he was campaigning, he talked about how vital and important the faith-based community is. and he knew that's why he met so many pastors from different congregations, Methodists Pesca- Pes- episcopals, you know Catholics, evangelicals, and I was there during the campaign just as well as you are. He knew that that was essentially the, the nucleus of success of the community, not government. He right. tells you that.
1: Right. And we I saw him, you. as yeah. I mentioned earlier in the show, as the first president, Republican or Democrat, to ever attend March for Life exactly. and support the lives of the exactly. unborn, which, as you know, yeah. we as Christians, well, as Catholics support. It's
8: to me because I'm, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm, I was rescued from an orphanage. I think I sent you that article It yeah. went uh, viral about when the president just says, you know, adoption, adoption, adoption. You know, I was in an orphanage in my, and I was rescued. So, you know, in terms of, I tell people, when something is is a core issue in you, and you're hired to be, well, you're elected president or senator, or you've become a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, that core value stays with you. And the and the the great thing about President Trump is the consistency of saying, you know, this is how I am. And when I become president, this is how I am. There was no wavering. There's no changes. And and he mocks and makes fun of like, well, I need to talk presidential and all that. And basically what he's saying is like he is making sure that he keeps the organic and authenticity of who he is. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if I'm a Christian, which I am, if I get elected something, I'm not going to just like, well, now that I'm elected, I'm not a Christian. No, that's your value that comes with you. And I try to tell people, I don't understand why you didn't march for life. I said, because that's a core value. A core value doesn't change. It's because you get promoted or you get elected or whatever. And you need to understand now. Now, unfortunately, Madison, historically, the American people have been duped on both sides of the aisle saying, well, now they're elected. I guess they have to change this way. And the President Trump's like, no, be who you are. And I admire that respectfully. Exactly. And and he's who
1: he is. 100 percent authentic. And exactly. that's, I think, part of why he's been so successful as exactly. president, as a candidate before he was elected. Um, and, you know, we you mentioned something a little bit earlier, which I think was also reflected uh, in this Gallup poll, which we now, you know, of course, have these hard numbers on when when the narrative, of course, is that this is not true and that. You know, minority Americans, black Americans specifically, hate the president uh, and that their lives aren't better. But the reality is, lives are better for many people. We talk about people feeding their families. We talk about people getting off food stamps, getting jobs. People who, hardworking Americans who had been searching for jobs, Bruce, for many years, that weren't able to get jobs. And so we look at this report, and Gallup reports an increase in the position of blacks and other racial minorities, the distribution of income and wealth, and the opportunity for a person to get ahead through hard work. And isn't that the foundation? of what our country was built on. That's certainly why my family immigrated to the United States. Is that, is that not the case?
8: Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Let's pivot on this for a second. How many presidents in the, in, the, in the past had come up and, well, I don't even know if they even cared or promised anything about as it relates to prison reform. Right. Now, this, there's no secret, unfortunately, our, our great nation has some 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 wounds that we're trying to heal historically from what we've done, especially through segregation and some injustices as it relates to our prison system and our justice system. Here we have a seventy-two-year-old New Yorkan white man that becomes the largest champion in saying, "Wait a minute, now there's something not right with this as it relates to the Clinton Crime Bill in '94, which totally disenfranchised African American communities. Oh, absolutely! I mean, devastated them. jumped out there and look what happened in the the prison step one act and this is something he received so much bipartisan
1: support on bruce and i want to play a clip for you um from cbs journalist major garrett which i think is very interesting um and really reflecting on the fact that i think even some democrats there's some democrats not all not not as many as we'd like to are starting to recognize what's going on and he got slammed for this take a listen
3: this administration because of president trump's quiet prodding has done quite a bit for funding of historically black colleges and universities the first step act which was a massive first step toward criminal justice reform just a couple of weeks ago in this newly signed defense bill there is a law that says if you are seeking work for the federal government or any contractor you don't have to be asked and you cannot be asked about your criminal history until right toward the end that's a significant change long sought by criminal justice advocates plus opportunity zones in the tax bill directed at communities of color that is a legacy on the agenda side that almost any president after 3 years would want to claim
1: i'd like to get you to react to that one bruce
8: yeah well you know it's interesting you you heard opportunity zones you heard the step one which we talked earlier is that you know there's really no one that's just literally stood up and 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 speak it into existence. You know, a lot of times, you know, the, this, the, the success for all of us in, in life is when our parents or someone speaks something into existence. The president speaks this into existence. What do you have to lose? Let me tell you what's going on here. Let me tell you about how you can take an underserved community and build a business in a, in a forgotten area that's been left behind, which is the opportunity zones. Right. In terms of how you can go open up as we did here in Atlanta, a 26-year-old, four months ago, first black young subway franchise owner under the Trump administration. It's incredible. A a a, uh, a young African American woman who owns the the Slutty Vegan that makes the best veggie burgers and French fries on this side of the Mason-Dixon line has a line out the door, based on just just. You know, the Oval Office and the administration right. and all the leadership. And these the are just in these Bruce, are it. just
1: a few of the many stories that we hear oh, now yeah. from all across the country of opportunity that's been created by this president for minority communities. We're going to have to leave it there. Exactly. But we appreciate you so much for joining uh, for joining us this evening.
8: Yeah, I appreciate it. It's, it's it's an honor. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Bruce. Well, it's been a great show. Thank you guys for inviting me in to your cars, to your homes here into the Freedom Hut As I fill in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show, have a great night.